Hello, and welcome back to the Film Brain Podcast. We've had a little bit of a break, but now we're back, and this is the episode I've been wanting to do for a very long time, since pretty much the podcast started, but I've been waiting until The Lion King came out. We are going to be talking about the Disney remakes, because, oh boy, is there a lot to talk about, especially given this year. But, of course, I'm not alone. Would you like to introduce yourselves, please? Sure. My name is Johnny. I run a YouTube channel called The Lone Chemist, where I have dank memes and also movie reviews and video essays. My name is Lasse Vogt. I am a German a podcaster, a movie reviewer, and a soundtrack critic. Do also a lot of stuff on YouTube, a lot of stuff with podcasts. I also studied filmmaking. I am doing pretty much everything online without actually earning any money off of it. But hey, that's life. <laughs> Isn't that all of us? Isn't that all of us? <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> this episode is going to be fairly jam-packed. <laughs> In my opinion, there is a lot of ground to talk about, but we're going to start off with The Lion King because we're recording this on the opening weekend of the movie. Let's do my traditional plot synopsis. I'm not sure how necessary this really is, considering that I think everyone has already seen the original version of The Lion King already, but in case you are in some way born under a rock or something, the plot is is that Simba is the new lion, the crown prince of the pride lands, born to Mufasa, who is voiced by James Earl Jones once again in the remake. Unfortunately, Simba falls victim to a staggering betrayal by Scar, voiced by Chiwetel Ejiofor in the remake, and he finds himself exiled from the Pride Lands, where he finds Timon and Pumbaa, voiced by Seth Rogen and Billy Eichner, and he grows up with them, shirking his responsibilities to the throne, but as an adult, now voiced by Donald Glover, he is eventually found again by Nala, voiced by Beyonce Knowles Carter, who encourages him to reclaim his birthright. So, I think that generally covers the movie. My opinion of this remake, just generally speaking, is that I thought it was a very visually stunning movie, which I think is the phrase that everyone uses to describe it. Oh, it's visually stunning. It's visually stunning. (laughs) I think that's mostly because that's the only thing you can really distinctly say about it. It is a very pretty movie, but there's also the fact that it's virtually identical to its predecessor, even more so than a lot of these Disney remakes. So when it comes to talking about the differences between them, it really is going to be splitting hairs. But what else did you guys think about it? Here's the thing, though, and you kind of touched on this. You can't deny that this movie is actually a masterwork of technical achievement. It really is. Like, the CGI, the shading, the lighting, it truly is is something truly special in terms of what they made in the computer. But the problem that I have with it, though, is it kind of leaks into something that I call National Geographic Syndrome, Mm. where basically they went for hyper-realism as opposed to anthropomorphized kind of faces and the animals, and that was in that really kind of solo down the river for me, because obviously with 2D animation, you have to exaggerate certain things or leave certain things out of expression, and so that was kind of my general opinion on it. There was all of the beauty of the Lion King with none of the soul. Yes. <laughs> CGI-wise, absolutely absurd achievement, but I just didn't really feel anything coming out of the theater, to be honest with you. 
<laughs> Let me tell you this. Um, I was able to go to a press screening of this movie. Mm. I paid no money for this <laughs> and I got a free drink. And I still felt robbed. <laughs> Re like, like, seriously, within the first few minutes, I was already so incredibly angry watching this. In hindsight, this is not the worst movie ever made or anything, but I actually still kind of hate it. I hate it for everything that it represents. Mm. Yeah. You were one of the first people to see this because you obviously saw it at an early screening and you're in my Discord chat, which I would like to promote. That is a Patreon perk. If you follow me on Patreon, you can be in that Discord chat. <laughs> you were telling me about this movie and you were really angry about it at the time, I remember. <laughs> oh, yes, I was. I was just letting out some steam and also online, like Twitter, Facebook. I just couldn't stop talking about it because it, it's just the crowning achievement of absolutely unnecessary. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. I didn't come into the this movie angry i didn't try to go into it hating it or anything like that i just wanted to just kind of take it on its own terms but it's very hard to it really is because all the time you're just going it's the same movie exactly <laughs> yeah it is because i actually i actually haven't seen the original lion king and like about a year or so ago i watched it last because i wanted to kind of try to go into this movie fresh in a way mm. trying to judge it on its own terms but it's like when i actually watched it my mind just just constantly wandered back to the original and so I actually wasn't able to follow the lines. Eventually my brain just gave up because I was like, it's really no use to try to follow the lines and the, the story because it's just the exact same story again. I know this. Exactly. And I was going to say like, to expand on your other point, like the crowning achievement of being completely unnecessary. The reason this thing exists is not because they want to retell the Lion King. It's because it's a comparison piece. Mm. That is the only reason this thing exists. <laughs> it's because there's this story, but now we have more capabilities technologically and let's see if we can actually you know pair this thing next to the original and see how it turns out in cgi like i totally agree it's far from the worst movie ever because it's based off one of the best movies ever so you can't really be terrible <laughs> yeah like i said there's just no soul to it there's nothing that's trying to say past what they already said in 1994 when this first came out and the only thing they have to say now is just beautiful cgi which i can't take away from john favreau he's a master of putting that kind of work on display but i didn't feel anything no like, i I felt empty, even less than empty. I, I I felt just like kind of bitter about the whole thing when I left. I still enjoyed it, but I'd rather watch a movie that has something original to say instead of just saying, oh, we have the Pride Rock scene. You've seen this before, but now you're going to see it in stunning 4K. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought it was completely unnecessary. I walked into it really not feeling anything. I, I was trying to give this a fair shake. Yeah. I'm, I'm not yeah. going into any movie like automatically wanting to hate it. I left the theater actually really angry. I like chucked my drink so hard into the been like i was throwing a little fit in a way and i've had that feeling before I, I i remember doing that when i came out of keith lemon the film and alien covenant so you know <laughs> i just felt betrayed in a way it's already a few days ago and i still can't wrap my head around how incredibly disappointed and angry i am at this whole disney thing and the movie industry and everything yeah, yeah. i think now is a good time to kind of talk about the relationship that we all have with disney and the original film in particular yeah. So you mentioned how you were kind of going into it fresh as much as you possibly could do and you hadn't rewatched the original. I rewatched the original the day before I saw it and that was 
the first time I'd actually sat down to watch it in probably 20 years. Mm -hmm. I don't think I'd seen it in a very, very long time. And my relationship with Disney, I wouldn't say... um, There's a lot of people online that are really passionate about Disney. And they adore Disney and they love everything about it. And they can name the characters for you. I'm not that person. I think my relationship with Disney is that I like I liked Mickey Mouse when I was a kid. <laughs> but, yeah. but, you know, I didn't go to the Disney parks or anything like that. I've never been to them. And the whole Disney vault meant that most of the anime titles weren't actually accessible in any real way. Disney kind of blocked access to them. So I always get the sense that Disney stuff was expensive and stuff I couldn't touch, essentially. So that's my relationship with Disney. So the most of the Disney stuff that I did see was all the stuff they released theatrically in the late 90s, things like Hercules and Tarzan, so mm. just sort of off the hot streak of the proper Disney renaissance. God, what did I begin with this? Like, <laughs> my relationship with Disney, there were, I think, six VHS tapes that I had as a kid, and they just, like, cycled in and out and in and out and in and out. One of them was Hercules, because I'm Greek. Soft spot <laughs> for Greek uh, mythology, of course. And, uh, you know, all the songs are absolute flames. Flubber, for some reason, which I like seeing uh, Dancing Green Goo. I don't know why. Yeah, but... I definitely remember seeing Flubber in the cinema. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> So I definitely had those two tapes. I had Flubber and I had... No, I didn't own Hercules, but I did have Aladdin. That was the one. But then, like, my kind of, like, other tape that I had in circulation constantly was Lion King. And actually, I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves, the Lion King was the first movie that I actually saw. Like, and I actually have a conscious memory of it. So Disney in general, and more specifically the Lion King, kind of has a special place in my heart. Like you, I wouldn't say that, like, I'm obsessed with Disney or, like, I'm a complete purist in any way but i do have a pretty fond emotional sentiment towards a lot of those movies specifically because the amount of emotion and iconic stories they were able to create out of a computer pen and paper from back in the day was really kind of inspiring for me and maybe one of the reasons why i love film so much today i wouldn't say i'm a purist but i i definitely am an appreciator and i can definitely recognize the impact that disney's movies have had in my life for sure Mm. my relationship with disney i mean I, i kind of grew up with some of the movies but me and my brothers we were really safely guarded by our parents and we reacted in a certain way to movies like we were very easily scared it took us four ages to actually finally dare to watch the second half of the jungle book because we're just too scared of Shere Khan (laughs) 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 Um, so so whenever you know the ruins uh, where the monkeys live uh, when when that gets destroyed it was always the sign for us to turn the VHS off But yeah, because it, it took us like ages to finally be able to see Beauty and the Beast and the Lion King. But there were certain things we, we watched on a regular basis. Aladdin was one of those. Um, Rescuers, the first one. Certain Disney stuff. But yeah, my relationship with Disney is uh, particular with the, the original. I always thought, yeah, the original is a really good movie. It's just really not one of my favorites. There are certain things that kind of irk me in a way. I'm not a big fan of most of the songs. But I, as a kid, I liked it more than I do now. But when I watched it the last time, which was, like I said, probably a year ago, it's a wonderful achievement on a technical and musical level. I mean, there's a reason is the only Oscar Hans Zimmer has actually ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> Watching The Lion King as an adult, having not really remembered that much of it as a kid, I remembered certain bits of it in detail, but it felt very different coming into it as fresh as I did. I felt the same way about Aladdin when I rewatched that, when I reviewed that earlier this year, is that I remembered bits of it, but it was weird coming into it with a mostly clean slate as an adult. It's kind of striking both of those movies on a 
visual level. It's kind of funny because Lion King, when it was made at the time, it was being made by the B-Squad in Disney. No one really <laughs> had the expectation for Lion King. The A-Team, as it were, was working on Pocahontas at the time, and we all yeah. know how that turned out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Animators actually left this project to be able to work on Pocahontas because they saw that as the more prestigious thing. Yeah. yeah. The Lion King, watching it as an adult, I actually got a really profound kind of emotional response. And I think it's one of those Disney movies that does actually work on that level because obviously it's dealing with those themes of father-child relationships, circle of life, which obviously includes death in that as well. So I think that yeah. The Lion King has a particular place in many children's childhoods because it's probably their first real conception of the concept of death, the concept of that finality of it. I think that's why Mufasa's death is up there in the same way as like Bambi's mother to cite another Disney classic is also a similarly traumatic moment. Yeah. It's definitely the Monday equivalent of that and I do think that in general many children have so much association with Disney growing up that they think of Disney when they think of their childhood. They think of the films and the products and the parks. 100%. Mm. Yeah. They associate themselves with the brand. You said something actually that I really agree with. The Lion King specifically. I mean all these movies they subtly give messages to kids about certain things in life they have to deal with when they get older but The Lion King especially had a lot of dark mature themes that it distilled in a very palatable way for young people like betrayal life after death the conception of politics and like you know assuming your place in the world mm. I'm a classic kind of 90s kid and I think The Lion King definitely had a big impact on me concerning you know what I think about the world and more kind of existential metaphysical concepts in life mm. when you think of your childhood I mean obviously the way you grow up is really important and I think Disney has a huge part in a lot of people's lives for you know their formative development mm. yeah absolutely like it's it's really kind of ballsy when you watch the original Lion King and it's like in, in Bambi you you have you know the, the cutaway and then the father comes and you know they cut to cute little birds and it's spring again yeah. and in this like they, they show the body it's really yeah. devastating that might be one of the reasons why we weren't allowed to watch it when we were really young because our parents were afraid that we couldn't cope with uh, this kind of harshness in our animated movie. <laughs> yeah. is definitely one of the more dramatic and emotional of the Disney films, but also when it has those emotional peaks, it can also be exceptionally joyous as an experience. It's a really vibrant, colourful movie in a lot of ways. Oh, for sure. Well, the original film. <laughs> I think now is the time to start talking about the various uh, differences between the two versions, which mostly comes down to staging, to be honest. <laughs> this won't take long. And uh, Seth Rogen laughing as the Pumbaa is probably one of the biggest differences yeah. in the movie. <laughs> I really cannot stress enough how virtually identical this film is in every way. I'm not Unreal. even like, talking about scene for scene. At times it's really line for line. Yeah. It's moment for moment. <laughs> There's a side by side on Twitter is a great one of like Scar talking to Simba in the CGI version and then the original version. You can just gather so much more emotion out of that 2D animated still rather than just two lines National Geographic talking to each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of jarring. The problem with the CGI, for me, is not on a technical thing. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's representative of a problem that I had all throughout the movie, in that it's just sort of painfully literal. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's really very on the nose <laughs> when you start watching it. So, the scene where Simba goes back to Pride Rock, Scars supposedly desolated the land, in the animated film, that is a very striking visual, in that it looks barren, gray, 
grey and cold. And in the remakes, they don't really do that. Yeah. They just sort of make it look dry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which speaks volumes about the overall feeling of uh, this remake. Yeah. The problem is that the remake has no actual colour to it. The remake's colours are all sort of khaki browns and yeah. things like that. For the exception uh, in, in the Timon and Pumbaa segments, but there it actually took me out of it how overly bright and kind of artificial it, it looked like something out of Alice in Wonderland. The problem is that you're working in 2D animation and it's got that vibrant kind of style to it and then you have to adapt it into a live action medium or at least as close as one can, you can really get because obviously the brief here was realism. Obviously nothing here is actually real <laughs> yeah. but that's the target they're aiming for. This is essentially the closest to realism an animated film is going to get. Really what you need to do is just start up from a ground level. At least in my opinion, if you're gonna do something like this, you shouldn't parrot the original movie just through a different lens. And that's so often what The Lion King is trying to do here. And most of the differences, in my opinion, came down to the comedians. Yeah. yeah. Most of the movie feels fairly anonymous. But what Favreau does here is that he does make his touch slightly known because he gives leeway to the comedians in the cast. Every so often, you can feel them riffing on the material. Okay, here's a moment where you can do your thing. Yeah. And it just feels a bit odd in a movie which otherwise reduces the humour very pointedly. I knew that King Michael Key was in this, but uh, when I started watching the movie, I straight up forgot he was in this. And I didn't know which hyena he was. Was he the dumb one or the annoyed one? He's Kamari, so they renamed the two other hyenas. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. They gave them African names in the remake. Okay, okay, but yeah, but I, I actually, when you can't really identify a King and Mikey Key's really distinct personality, then you know as a movie you royally fucked up. Mm. And that kind of comes down to CGI versus the color too. In 2D animation, you have a lot more to play with in terms of color palette. Let's say you have Scar and Mufasa next to each other and the CGI remake, I mean, obviously like one is more muted and more bland and the other one's more like a stereotypical line that you'd see. But in the original movie, Scar looks completely different mm. and you can actually see the dichotomous tones between the two characters. They're almost like dark reflections of one another and that's completely lost in the CGI remake. And the same thing with the hyenas. Like, like the fact that like, I forgot what the characters actually look like is a problem for me if I'm trying to actually like associate an emotion with the characters. <laughs> there is a problem with the remake in that all the characters are designed to look the same because that's what lions look like. Exactly. Yeah. And there's no color palette you can do because like if you're going for hyper-realism, you're not going to have a black-maned lion and a red-maned lion and a brown-maned lion. They're all going to be lions, but they have different voices. If you're going for hyper-realism, I can't tell them apart. <laughs> the biggest problem uh, was in the uh, climactic fight sequence, where it's just like, who is fighting who here? Oh, yeah. The color scheme, just everything bleeds into each other. It looks like Batman v Superman in a way. Yeah. And then there's this one part where the main hyena mm. is fighting one of the lions, and it took me a while to actually realize, oh, that one is actually Nala, and that's the main hyena. They try to make her look like a little bit more bulky. Mm. As soon as they are not talking, I can't tell them apart. There's not enough distinctness in the designs. Me and uh, Johnny are both in uh, like a film critic Twitter group, and I think at least one of us tweeted about the character posters they released for the film. 
film where they just look identical. <laughs> <laughs> but it sums up the problem for me. I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the climax of the movie because I was genuinely having a hard time following the choreography of what was going on in that sequence because I couldn't actually tell them apart in that moment. But uh, I think there's another moment that also kind of indicates the unfortunate problem there in that they do the reflection of Simba in the water. Oh my God. And it's supposed to reflect into Mufasa and you can barely identify that it shifted at that point. Whereas in the original animation, there was a more distinct difference between those two designs. That's the whole point of like that moment and it's completely lost yeah. in the remake. That's an actual <laughs> profound moment emotionally in the original. And with this one, that's just completely kicked out the door. Yeah. Also like the way they do actually the whole thing in the clouds, it's just now it's vaguely this thunder that kind of looks like Mufasa. Yeah. They're also trying to make that one realistic. You know, the cloud magic because that needs to be more realistic. Exactly. <laughs> they are trying to make all of these like fantastical things like look completely realistic and I get it. Like, you know, it's sitting in the jungle. You gotta make it realistic. But magic thunder, magic lightning to make a magic line in the sky, like you really gotta go for hyper realism. Like, spare me. Come on. <laughs> oh, that's so stupid. It's so stupid. It makes no sense. <laughs> it is basically realism over any sort of sense of fantasy about it, which is... Or emotion. Yeah. Which is so strange because this is a movie about talking lions. Yeah, it's yeah. also... Uh, you, you mentioned you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the expressionless faces and all of that. The scene that really stuck out to me in that way, and you mentioned that, you know, in comparison to the animated one, the other animated one, I should say, is the scene where Mufasa has died, and you can hear the child actor, you know, he's giving it his all, he's crying, he's sniffing, and there's just nothing in his face that reflects that. Oh, man. Nothing! And I actually saw, I, I, I forget the name, but somebody actually did a thing on Twitter, taking certain screenshots of the movie, and sliding altering the faces so they show a little bit more emotion and it looks a million times better and I'm like you can't do this in your big Disney blockbuster? Mm. Yeah for millions of dollars do that. My, the thing that really screwed with me for the emotional faces was at the end of the movie when Simba finally beats Scar and he's gonna assume is like the rightful king of the Pride Lands. So in the animated or the like you said the original animated movie Simba walks up in the pouring rain and all the lions have this pride stricken face and they're like oh my god our king's back. In this movie, they all have resting cat face, like, <laughs> yeah. while he's, like, just walking up to the rock. Are you happy? Are you sad? I don't get it. Like, if I didn't hear Hans Zimmer's awesome score there, I wouldn't even think there was a happy moment. I didn't feel anything <laughs> at all. I would much rather, like you said, a little bit of distorted reality and keep all the realism and CGI the same. Just distort the faces a bit. That's all you have to do. Which we were actually able to do in the Jungle Book. Yes. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's so anthropomorphic and so anthropomorphized. Obviously, there's one kid actor in that movie. So, like, obviously you can relate a little more emotionally to it. But they made Baloo look kind of like a fat guy. They made uh, Bagheer look like the stuck-up, pretentious douchebag, like, in, in their faces. And with this one, they just literally copy and paste from a National Geographic on Lions. I did a podcast with Garrett Snook a few weeks ago um, when I hadn't seen the Lion King remake yet. And I was, like, going off from the trailers, it just looks like the thing they could have done also is just actually flying to Africa, film real Lions, put Hans Zimmer music over it, and uh, it would be done. <laughs> 
It's such a strange decision because you look at a still shot of this movie and it looks great, but the problem is the movie just keeps looking like the still shot because the expressions on the lion's faces don't change. They aim for realism in every single frame, and what they've done is they've kind of missed the forest for the trees, as it were. (laughs) The expressions don't register because they're so locked into place in that they have to look exactly right. Whereas if you look at animation, if you look in between frames there's weird stuff going on but of course your eye doesn't properly register that whereas in cg animation it's got that uncanny valley effect very subtle uncanny valley effect but still there in that the eyes aren't really registering the emotion the eyes are the parts that are really missing from the remake it's got that effect that the polar express has Hmm. everyone kind of looks a bit glassy dead-eyed the lion king has that the eyes are so important and has john favreau ever seen a cat in real life <laughs> i can tell you right now those are pretty expressive oh yeah they're pretty expressive in their own way i mean you don't have to have human body language you yeah. can just make them expressive on their own terms and i don't think the film truly accomplishes that totally agree yeah, yeah have one of you guys seen the andy circus version of a jungle book Mowgli on netflix i haven't seen it yet no uh, i unfortunately have not because that one goes for this approach where actually all the actors who are playing the animals are uh, done with motion capture so they capture a lot of the emotion in the faces and in the movement. The result looks a little bit weird, mm. but it's still it's so incredibly expressive. Christian Bale plays Bagheera in that one, and it, it's one of his best performances ever. He actually made me tear up several times. You can tell which characters are which, but the one that looks the weirdest is Shere Khan, played by Benedict Cumberbatch, and they're channeling his smoke voice again. That approach actually kind of worked for me, because you have real emotion in that, and you can connect with these characters. And in this one, it's, it's just blank faces, and it's weird because animals like these actually are kind of more expressive than the normal person gives them credit for, uh, as I should say. Mm. I agree. When we're talking about staging as well, it distracted me on two levels because there'll be times where I'll be going, oh, this is so overly faithful, shot for shot in key instances. So you have the original opening title sequence replicated virtually shot for shot. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got the sequence in the gorge, Mufasa's death as well well played out almost shot for shot and Simba's reaction to that it made me chuckle I mean obviously there's the video going around yeah. where they put the two scenes back to back and it looks worse the second time around when they do the flashback later on and they slow down the footage and it makes it look so much worse it's really weird because they mess up the key scenes in particular when he you know falls down they don't even play the same music cue they don't have the horrified expression on Simba's face like he does in yeah. the original where it's like Jesus Christ, the whole world is collapsing right now. And yeah, my just, dad just died in front of me. It's amazing in the original, so amazing. And in this, it's like they want to rush through it. The key scenes, the really powerful scenes, they don't seem to pay that much attention because the filmmakers just seem to stick their middle finger in the air and say, yeah, we know you've seen this, so so screw you. <laughs> I think that there is a presumption on their part of the emotional connection that I think is incorrect. They presume that because of the audience affinity for the material that is going to do the work for them in many cases. Exactly. That's such a wrong assumption. You should treat any movie as its own thing, even if it is a sequel or a remake or or something like that. You know, you really should try to connect to your audience. And and this movie just fails because they just know everybody who goes and watches this, they have seen the original. Just like you said, it's just the totally wrong approach. It's really strange because I get the sense they're really 
really playing it safe here. It's so lazy, though. The problem with doing a remake of something of Aladdin or A Lion King is that those movies are very recent, and they're targeting the people that saw them as kids the first time around, and they're really afraid of actually doing anything radical with them, because otherwise people are going to throw a fit about it. Oh no, they've changed this, they've changed that. So they're scared of making anything significant like that, and at that point you go, well, why bother at all then? Aside from the obvious one. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, for the obvious one being money. The, the thing that really pisses me off, it's like, I get wanting to update modern stories with the amount of technical prowess that we have now. I totally get it from a computer-generated standpoint. I get that there's a lot of things we can do now that we wouldn't really have any hope of doing back in the day. But my problem is exactly what you said. It's like, just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should. <laughs> like, honestly, what are we going to do now? A photorealistic bug's life? Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Think about that. <laughs> Having like spiders and ants and stuff be photorealistic at a certain point something's gotta give yeah we blow this technology out the ass and we completely can do anything in live action now that was even remotely insinuated as animation as kids or we just kind of let the emotions of those things kind of live on i don't know if either one's gonna be really done going forward but it comes across as lazy yeah mm. and it comes out as so cynical too where it's like it's obvious to anybody who isn't a disney sycophant that they're doing this solely for the purpose of making money yeah because the lion king the first one is so charmed and it's so unique even though it's animal hamlet the emotional sentiment that you're robbed of when you see this movie regardless of any beautiful photorealistic cgi there is it's a shame because it's just a very cynical look at the movie industry and going back to the point about staging when they do change the staging it's always to dilute it in some way that makes it feel inferior yep. this is particularly clear in the musical numbers oh yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, which again shows the difference between the two styles of animation in that a great chunk of Hakuna Matata is in a straight line. Yeah, yeah. just them walking. Actually, most of uh, I Can't Wait to Be King is similarly done in a straight line, and it's desperately trying to keep up with the tempo of Elton John and Tim Rice's music. And it's not happening because, of course, you've got the physical limitations of what they're trying to adapt on screen very obviously apparent. It's the same thing as um, in the Aladdin remake with the Prince Ali. Oh, man. Mm. <laughs> just staged as them, just sort of in a very slow moving parade float <laughs> yeah com compare that to the genie song got a, got a friend like me um where they actually you know they use the cgi to actually do some creative stuff with movement and camera work yeah that was one of the better stage musical numbers because they can do anything they want with the computers the jungle book had the same problem they have the creative uh, musical number uh, bare necessities where they do all sorts of stuff and in the remake it's just them swimming in the river and then the wanna be like you song it's just you know the Christopher Walken ape just sitting there. In that movie, it's like, okay, do you want to be a musical or not? It's kind of going back and forth. But in this one, it's uh, when you have a bunch of songs and they are all staged so boringly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Favreau is not really a visualist, not in my opinion. That's really obvious here. He just doesn't really have the imagination for it. I think he knows how to handle a technically intense movie, but he doesn't have an eye. No, no, no. I mean, compare his two Iron Man movies with the one Shane Black directed. Yeah. I get the sense that Favreau is kind of a journeyman here. Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, I get the impression with a lot of these Disney remakes that the people that are working on them, they're working on them because they know that it'll be an instant success. It will allow them to do the things that they want to do. So I'd imagine that Favreau probably was like, I did the Jungle Book. That was something I wanted to do. Now you want me to do The Lion King. Okay, I will do that. 
but you give me carte blanche on that Star Wars series that I'm doing in return for this. It's the sort of same thing with Guy Ritchie. Guy Ritchie has come off a string of flops, then he does Aladdin, which is the biggest movie of his career, but has virtually no stamp on from him whatsoever, but, you know, he's going to be able to do whatever the heck he does afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Maybe that was one of the reasons why Tim Burton said yes to Dumbo, but that one wasn't even a hit, so so it's like, who, who knows what he will do next? It's, yeah. Going back to the point you actually made about the, uh, the musical stuff when compared to the Jungle Book, I think I actually might disagree a bit. The Lion King doesn't feel like it's inspired by the original Lion King here. The Lion King just feels like it's a modern adaptation, where the Jungle Book, at least, it feels like it's just kind of invoking those songs opposed to performing them straight up. So yeah. I think I'm a little more sympathetic to like Bear Necessities kind of flying on the river and like, you know, just like having like fun with a big fat guy with a kid in his stomach. I thought that was kind of charming, but sure. I can see what you're saying about like having the thing just kind of be boringly framed. But I mean, I do like it because I mean, that, that song is literally about just friendship and like having all you need to survive is just like in front of you. I think I'm, I'm a little more sympathetic to you than you guys are. I will agree that the Lion King songs are absolutely atrocious in this movie. If they went for hyper realism, why are they having lions sing as opposed yeah. to just like talking? It really was jarring because if you're going for hyper realism, literally make a thing like the Jungle Book, have it inspired by and invoke the kind of same sentiments. Don't perform the songs just straight up. It was really kind of upsetting to be honest with you. I mean, a lot of the new voice cast are singers, yeah. which mm. is a definite step up from its previous incarnation where mm. obviously you had Matthew Broderick who couldn't sing and was replaced for the numbers and obviously you had Maura Carley in the same way. So there is certain improvements in the voice cast. You've got Donald Glover who can sing, of course. Yeah, Beyonce can sing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So obviously you don't have to switch them during the songs. There's also the fact that, of course, the problem with the original cast of the original Lion King is that most of them were white in a story that is set in Africa. So uh, we have a predominantly African-American cast this time, which I think is right. And I do think that that is at least one of the areas you can say that the Disney remakes do improve upon in that they actually correct that casting. That's definitely something that Disney has been criticized for, even around the time of Aladdin, the way they westernized a story set in that world by their casting. I think that's definitely a problem that they've had come up a time and time again. But I think that these remakes do at least try making efforts in trying to correct things like that. So I can at least concede that point. Sure, but in my opinion, if you want to see kind of like a more appropriate actual live action kind of remake to The Lion King, just go back and watch Black Panther again. Yeah, there is, there is also that idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because that one has kind of similar story beats mm. and essentially tells us a similar kind of plot with uh, right changes. That actually is the more appropriate remake, in my opinion. Hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I think Black Panther lends itself pretty well to like that kind of remake ethos of The Lion King. This kind of brings in like the bigger question where it's like, should they even bother from like a, a fan service standpoint with these movies going forward? They got to know that people hate these movies or at least hate the sentiment that it gives off. Do they though? Do they? Yeah. yeah. It, it, it seems like they are deaf to criticism. That is true. I mean, they're Disney. Like, you know, Mickey Mouse runs the wallet. So. <laughs> <laughs> they cast a lot of actual singers and then they cast Seth Rogen. Okay. I will say this though. <laughs> Seth Rogen was probably my favorite part of the movie. I'm going to be honest. Yes. Mine as well. I did like Seth Rogen in the film, but you know, he can't sing. <laughs> Okay, but like, you don't really need a, an operatic singer for Pumbo, though. No, I, I thought he did fine. There wasn't really anything. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and it's just like I actually really liked um, his casting in particular it's just like he's having a blast and uh, his voice really fits that character but which, which makes it true again you know when you're going for realism then you actually have to show how incredibly ugly a warthog is yeah what do you guys think of uh, John Oliver as Zazu though uh, it was hit or miss for me because he never said anything and I like John Oliver but all his supposed gags fell flat to me yeah yeah you can clearly tell that someone said okay we can't have him do Rowan Atkinson so uh, most of his dialogue is actually different and you get the sense that Oliver is riffing in those sequences yeah. he's just not great there what did seem to be like a little passing moment where they kind of acknowledged that he was the host of last week tonight and on the daily show where he goes this is the news yeah true that's <laughs> pretty funny when yeah. he, he flies up to the rock and then uh, Mufasa is like news report I was actually afraid that we were going to do a morning report and all of that yeah. and I was like no please don't but yeah. they don't they at least were that smart there was a couple of uh, other meta moments that they interjected into the movie like uh, the bit where Seth Rogen's uh, Pumba says uh, oh you've grown 400 pounds over the course of this song <laughs> yeah yeah that's, uh, that's true but that was that one me. that got a little bit of a chuckle out of me yeah the other one was the bizarre insertion of Be Our Guest from Beauty and the Beast yeah Be Our Guest yeah 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 oh that actually made my skin crawl <laughs> they replaced Timun sort of dancing in the hula which I think in the original was an improvised line anyway and then they kind of riffed <laughs> on it and they decide okay we're going to have a meta reference to another Disney film in a film which is also in many other respects pretending to be realistic it's just totally out of place and I mean in, in the original that, that song also kind of breaks before fall but it's uh, in the way it's animated it's exaggerated you can allow yourself a kind of stuff you can let it go it took me a while to actually recognize what they were doing but when he said your dinner I was like oh no <laughs> oh man yeah, that, that made me sad. <laughs> but, but what made me much more sad is actually, let's talk about the elephant graveyard in the room. Be prepared. Oh, man. Uh, it actually, to me, it seemed like Ichiofo refused to sing. Yeah. It's like he was just standing in front of a microphone. He was like, I'm only continuing this if I don't have to sing. And so it's like one minute. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that they were actually doing the song because there was this big fit online where they actually said they were going to cut out the entire thing. That was the biggest surprise and shock in the movie for me. It's like, oh, they're actually doing pre-prepared, but then they kind of didn't. It was over, yeah. <laughs> it's a very sort of, oh, it's there. It's there because people moaned that it wasn't there. And then you wonder, oh, well, that was the reason why they cut it in the first place. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like, it's, it's, it feels tacked on. Yeah. I think it's a good place to talk about EGO4's performance as Scar. I like Chiwetel EGO4. I think he's a terrific actor. I've seen him perform on stage live. He's a great choice, but I I don't think he really gets Scar very well because Jeremy Irons' performance in the original film, he was clearly having fun with yeah. it. He is so having it up in his voice performance, but he is savouring that. EGO4 goes for a kind of darker, a bitter take on the character. It just doesn't really work. It doesn't seem like he's kind of enjoying being menacing. No. Yeah. And also, you know why they cast him because they were like, oh, in the original we had a British actor and now we also need to have a British actor. It also comes across kind of cynical in a way. And I, I like Ichio uh, for as well. I've seen him in a couple of movies and he's really good. And I've seen him in some villain roles where he did uh, a good job. How they designed Scar, he just doesn't look intimidating at all. I would agree. And also like going back on a point that Match has said, Scar is like evil to the point of exaggeration. It's legitimately all theatrics. <laughs> but like seriously, this coupled with the fact that Ichio performance is really not that theatrical, not that really hammy. And the fact that it is so 
literal and blatant in terms of how they actually present the character's design. It just makes it feel like kind of an uninspired performance, even though EG4 is one of my favorite actors working right now. Mm-hmm. And also, like, why would you have James Earl Jones reprise his role as Mufasa, but not have Jeremy Irons reprise his role as the villain? Because, like, I feel like that'd be actually kind of interesting to have the two kind of main hitters of the movie, the villain and the kind of grandfather-esque character, and then have them kind of, like, usher in this new cast of characters. I think that would have made more sense. <sighs> I, I don't know. But it's just like uh, the way they designed Scar and the way he moves or rather doesn't move. He's just <laughs> always kind of standing or sitting there sulking. Yeah. It, it, it came across like that kind of like Megatron in the third Transformers movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you bring up James Earl Jones. I think that was my first immediate red flag about this movie when they initially announced the casting and then it's James Earl Jones reprising his role as Mufasa. And I go, oh, really? I mean, I know that there are people going, well, you can't replace him. He defines that role. And yeah, that's true. But you could have tried. You could have. Yeah. You could have done something as opposed to recasting James Earl Jones. And my problem with his performance in this is that, as Favreau says, yeah, the cadence of his voice has changed. I think that his voice is obviously much frailer now. You can hear that in his performance, and I think he is clearly going through the motions. Yeah. He embodies the problem with this remake in that it's kind of just going through the same things over and over again. He also got that impression in Rogue One with his Darth Vader scene. Oh, for sure. Where it's like, he clearly also doesn't want to do this stuff anymore, where he's like, really, you're bringing me back because you still can't let Star Wars go. But actually, when I heard him in the trailer, I was dead set convinced. I was like, did they even bring him back into the audio booth or did they just recycle his original lines? Yeah, I was I was wondering, like, at a certain point, if you're just going to use the same guy in the same role and you're going to use the exact same dialogue virtually, why even bother getting to record new lines? Exactly. You might as well use the stems from the original soundtrack. Yeah, that's true. Who would have been a good, uh, if they actually had to choose, like, a different actor? I think someone like Keith David would have been a good choice, maybe? Yeah, Keith David would have been a good choice. My thought, if they want a name, and I, I was just sort of thinking about this, Denzel Washington. Oh. He's about the right age, he has the right kind of presence, I think, for that sort of role. I think if you cast him as Mufasa, I think that he would be perfect for it. But of course, that would require a little bit more imagination when we can just get a clearly quite disinterested James Earl Jones back. Yeah, yeah, that's true. It, it's so weird who they chose to recast and which one's not. Because uh, on that note, they, they could have just brought Rowan Atkinson back as well. Or Nathan Lane, you know? It, it, it's so weird. It makes no sense. It really doesn't. Yeah, yeah. If you are going to make this its own thing, then why bring someone back. I mean, it's not the same voice track, obviously, and some of the dialogue from the original is snipped, but even so, this movie is longer than its original counterparts, and it's mostly just because of padding. It's padding, and it's mostly mice and bucks. Yes. So, Johnny, you mentioned the National Geographic aspect. Yes. (laughs) You were really right on that, because um, the bulk of the additions to this film are not in the speaking parts, they're in the transitions between scenes. Yep. Jesus Christ. Like, as soon as I saw that mouse running around for, like, a minute, I immediately got what they were doing, and I was about to flip the screen with Double Bird. You're putting in the bare minimum of new shit, but you're also clinging to nostalgia and praying to God that people still have nostalgia for the story that you're telling. And obviously they do. That's really the only selling point for this thing. And, like, to have those, like, really cringy Nat Geo transitions, it just makes it feel like it's such a waste of time to even see this shit. (laughs) The thing that's the problem with those transitions 
transitions as they throw off the pace of the story. The original film is an in-and-out 90 minutes, and this one literally just sort of clogs itself up at one point. There's that transition where a bit of Simba's fur is flying through the air, and that was so much better in the remake because a giraffe eats it and then poops it back out again. I'm like, why? Why have we got this in the middle of the movie now? That was actually one moment I had a discussion with another critic before the screening he was sitting next to me and then there's that scene where the hair of Simba flies up in the air and then it lands in the bird's nest and then a giraffe eats it and then they cut to black and at that point I was throwing my arms in the air turning to uh, the critic and I was like fuck what's that yeah. <laughs> and then they show the bug with the ball of shit dragging it across the ground and then I was realizing it this is the perfect metaphor for the movie <laughs> They are padding this movie with little shit. That would have been a perfect opportunity for you, Matthew, to stand up at the cinema and screaming symbolism. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, you're so right. It's ingesting the bare minimum of what they need from the original story and they're just shitting out the rest. <laughs> it's unreal. <laughs> you're, you're right. Perfect metaphor for this actual manifestation of the Lion King. It's just absurd. The strangest thing is, though, the most significant additions come directly after Hakuna Matasa. The sequence where they go back to the Pride Rock. Yeah. That's most Mostly to extend the role of Nala, those sequences focus on her character because obviously you have to give Beyonce something to do. <laughs> so they establish that and they replace the scene with um, Scar and Zazu. And so you get a bit more of a heroic side to Nala. And this has been something that has been recurring in a lot of the Disney remakes. That they try to bulk up the female roles that have often been underwritten. So you had this with Jasmine in Aladdin. The two films also share the fact that they both add additional songs for Jasmine and Nala. And I think in both cases you can see how those songs are completely unnatural to the narratives they don't feel like they're necessary in the case of Speechless in Aladdin it literally just stops the movie cold for a dream sequence yeah yeah. in this one they at least were smart enough to put it in a montage that actually moves the plot along <laughs> were they smart enough though it just shows how pointless of an addition it was that's true but at least they didn't stop the movie dead to let her sing the song because that was one thing I was worried about they just use it as the basis of a transition scene yeah. and then at that point you go why even bother inserting in a new song no there's no point just to slap it on the album cover to make more cells it's strange decisions like that all the way through this I mean we're trying to talk about The Lion King but we're also trying to talk about the other Disney remakes as well and I think it's at this point we should probably expand mm-hmm. our focus a little bit yeah because we've already touched upon these other ones so the Disney have been remaking their movies for quite a long time at least certainly going back to the 90s we've had a couple of them but they've really kicked into high gear since 2013 or so at a conference where they were talking about these movies the term that they used to describe them were brand deposits that is a term that was coined to apple incidentally oh oh god each film is a product and the product exists to furnish their own reputation so a good example of a brand deposit that isn't a remake is Saving Mr. Banks mm. that is a brand deposit movie because it is furnishing people's nostalgia for both Mary Poppins yeah. but also Walt Disney it's sort of a hagography of him to a certain extent although it's surprisingly accurate to the truth yeah. it kind of rewrites the story in that oh P.L. Travers really loved the Disney Mary Poppins uh... Uh, spoiler alert she didn't no no 
a bit where doing is more subtly in a way where it's like okay she's she's kind of sympathetic towards it in some cases but they kind of leave it open uh, in the end yeah. which, which I thought was actually the smart move I actually really liked that movie like the way yeah. they were it was cute I don't mind that movie but it is definitely Disney rising their own reputation as it were yeah sure but they are actually fairly critical in some cases which I actually really enjoyed yeah there are a lot of movies like that that I actually am more sympathetic to like I mean not as blatant of a case but Christopher Robin's also another one like that mm. they take a story and they have kind of a third party view on it but they also kind of like have callbacks to other Disney properties I'm more sympathetic to those that actually bolster the brand as opposed to just taking the exact same thing and recycling it through a, a machine of CGI yeah I actually really like that one as well like it yeah, was kind of it was like cute. It was really cute. Uh, the hook version <laughs> of Christopher Robin I liked it as a quasi sequel in a way exactly. they, they really did a good job yeah I, I quite liked Christopher Robin when I got around seeing it I, I enjoyed it I, I thought it was a bit weird watching that and Mary Poppins Returns fairly close together because the plot beats are very similar oh, yeah. uh, which is odd you would have thought someone would have pointed that out yeah. <laughs> at some points that they're very similar but it's kind of interesting that uh, Disney has gone back to Mary Poppins not once but twice over the last several years I think that's a very interesting decision I mean the way the Disney remakes handle now are very different to some of the earlier Disney remakes I mean obviously Jungle Book was remade in the 90s but that technically isn't a Disney film that was one that they distributed the Stephen Summers movie yeah because they didn't handle that in the UK so it's not technically a Disney movie but mm. of course 101 Dalmatians the John Hughes written version which uh, is very loosely based on the animated movie oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that one I just want to get my like my kind of like thoughts generally on Disney remakes I've been sounding really cynical like shitting on the Lion King I don't think that they're impossible to do I mean obviously like the post shot of that is the Jungle Book I think Jungle Book's actually a fantastic film and I think it's a good testament on like you can pay homage to a story while also like have your own kind of spin in the story and kind of experience the world forward and even Mowgli the one on Netflix that we were talking about earlier I haven't seen it but it seems like they kind of take that story in and they kind of invoke it as opposed to just have a straight up retelling so I'm not saying that they can't be good but when it leaks into this kind of just churning out the exact same thing over and over and over again it just kind of makes me feel like my role of a viewer is not an active one but a passive one because I've already uh, re- I've, yeah. I've already reacted to all of these things before <laughs> I'm supposed to just like fork over my money and see this shit over and over and over again and have a diluted form of the exact same emotional sentiments that I've already had. It just seems cynical. Yes. Like, like you said, if they have more either brand bolstering or brand deposit movies, I think I'd probably be more sympathetic towards it. Like if they had, I mean, I don't know, like a Scar prequel or something, would that be kind of cringy, but at least that'd be original? Mm. I don't know. Like it feels kind of icky like, yeah. for a, a very immature word to like just churn out the same thing over and over again and expect people to have a unique emotional sentiment towards it as opposed to just doing something actually original. Maleficent kind of gets lumped into the Disney remakes and I don't technically consider Maleficent or its forthcoming sequel which also features Chiwetel Ejiofor Link oh true yeah Yeah. I don't consider those to officially be remakes because they're not they're kind of jumping off as you say from Sleeping Beauty but they're not the same thing it's a twist on the story and there is interesting things going on in Maleficent I don't think that was a very successful movie when I reviewed it several years ago I wasn't very positive on it I thought it was very confused about what I was trying to do with its main character yeah. mm. in that it's trying to make her simultaneously both hero and villain but at least it's doing something different yeah. with it you that's, know? True, that's true 
I actually kind of enjoyed that movie. And also in the very first sentence of the narration, they actually say, let's take a story you already know and see if we can twist it a little bit or something like that. So uh, from frame one, they establish what they're trying to do with that. And yes, it's trying to go for something different. It's, it's not so much of a remake as like a retelling in a way, a new a new spin on it with a new twist. And uh, the, the sequel will be even further away from the source material. But at least, I mean, it looks like from a trailer, it looks like, you know, a generic fantasy movie, but at least it's not a straight up remake of anything. What you said there is what the best remakes do is they take a story that's familiar, they update it and they change it and it makes it relevant and contemporary and do things they couldn't do previously before. That's what the best remakes do. We're not trying to crap on the process of remakes or the existence of them. There are good remakes. There's also a ton of them that are just totally unnecessary. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm one of the people I I really enjoy Peter Jackson's King Kong. Doesn't need to be three hours long, but it's like, this is a guy redoing a movie he obviously loves Mm, and just trying to do his his own spin on it. And it really works. I, I really enjoy that one. Yeah. There is something to be said about remaking a movie that you have some kind of passion for, but there's also something to be said about taking the inspiration from something and then turning it into something else. And a clear example of this is Pete's Dragon. Yeah. Pete's Dragon, the live action movie, nothing to do with the animated one virtually. That was one I actually haven't seen and I heard it's it's really, really good. But that's one of those cases. It didn't make any money apparently and that was one of the early ones and yeah. that was the sign for Disney. Okay, scratch all of this kind of approach. Let's do it completely safe from now on. But, I mean, to be fair, though, Pete's Dragon was not really the most popular Disney film to begin with, though. <laughs> no! I, I get why I didn't make money, even though I actually really like Pete's Dragon. But that's kind of the problem yeah. in the first place. Yeah, they're playing it safe because they've done movies like Pete's Dragon that have totally bombed at the box office. But, of course, the problem was that people don't have an emotional attachment yeah. to it in the same way that they do The Lion King or Like Aladdin. But that gives you so much more free reign to actually actually do something with them yeah. as opposed to something where people will have such connection with them if you do change them yeah. you'll really get people riled up because you'll get people that are annoyed that you haven't changed enough and then you'll get people that are annoyed that you did change things <laughs> oh a remake that would be incredible for live action today in a modern sense would be Treasure Planet I think that Treasure Planet would be probably one of the most effective remakes I've ever done mm. I'm not a huge fan of the original movie I think there's a lot of problems with it even though I do love Treasure Island as a story but this seems like it would be perfect for kind of capitalizing on the kind of modern framework they're trying to bring Disney into mm-hmm. and because the Treasure Planet was kind of a bomb to begin with I feel like the fact that you're actually going to be depicting human beings in a futuristic story in 2019 or 2020 or whatever would be actually really interesting to do but I think that like just churning out CGI animals is really going to shoot them in the foot at the end of the day <laughs> yeah I would actually agree with that in that I think that that would be a good one for um, remaking I was having a similar thought actually that I was thinking about at the Black Cauldron. Oh, yeah. That was my number one pick, yes. Yeah, which is similarly considered another Disney failure, of course, so much so that it nearly sank the studio in the mid-80s. <laughs> That's crazy, by the way. Like, how did that one movie completely, like, screw Disney up the river? Boy. So I can understand why they wouldn't want to remake it, even in a sense of, oh, well, we're capitalizing on old IP. But even so, that is a movie that you could make work in a live-action form. I think that we're at a point now where fantasy movies 
movies like that are able to be made properly in a way that you couldn't do in live action in the 80s. Yeah. There is fertile ideas in going back to the catalogue. The problem is, is that most of that is rooted in failure, and most of that is probably why they won't revisit it. Yeah. I actually don't think they're ever gonna touch a Black Cauldron, not only because it actually was one that wasn't successful, and right now they're remaking the most successful stuff, but also the, the whole fantasy trend is kind of dying down. Mm. That would have been a perfect film to remake when Lord of the Rings came out and brought the whole fantasy genre back into the blockbuster stuff and all of that. But right now, after uh, stuff like The Hobbit came out and, and some other movies that bombed, it's too late for that one. Yeah. I don't think they, they would be in any way successful, even though that movie has gotten kind of a cult following. But Treasure Planet, that's actually one I really kind of love, even though the movie has problems, but it's uh, I actually really like it. Another candidate that would be promising would be Atlantis, expanding on that one. Yeah, actually, that's a good thought. Yeah, yeah in, in a live-action way. Because that is also a movie I actually really enjoy, but you can tell that if you expanded that, take what worked about it and expand on all the stuff, the mythology, the culture, you could do a killer live-action version of that. Yeah, for sure. When you see the link between all these movies that we keep bringing up is they're predominantly with human characters and they don't have, <laughs> you know, hugely fantastical elements like genies or talking lions in them. Have you noticed that there's a bit of a trend in the ones that we keep discussing as opposed to the ones they keep yeah. remaking? Absolutely, yes. I guarantee you, at a certain point, they are going to try the rescuers and all of that. Realistic talking mice. mice and they are going to. I, I guarantee you, because right now they're talking about redoing Hercules, where I actually thought that was one they wouldn't touch, because recently Hercules has kind of gotten a bad rap yeah. in cinema, even though I, I actually really like that Dwayne Johnson run. And now they are trying to do like, oh, okay, who, who could play this one? Who could play that one? I'm like, no, please don't. Like, the original isn't really that good. Still, it, it's brand recognition. It's name recognition, just for the sake of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem with these. We should probably also talk about the other remakes that came out this year, <laughs> because uh, this has been a jam-packed year for remakes. Oh, God. <sighs> Uh, so uh, this starts off with Tim Burton's Dumbo returning <laughs> to the Disney remake well after his Alice in Wonderland, which is, I guess, technically a sequel to the original, yeah. but is also awful. <laughs> yeah. And Dumbo is uh, made me depressed, actually, to be honest. It was so bad. Oh, my God. Uh, you, you're going to hate me. I actually kind of liked it. <laughs> for shame. <laughs> I could still understand it. I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge sucker for Tim Burton stuff, and I would be the first one to say Alice in Wonderland is just awful. <laughs> <laughs> but that is just him, like you said in your Aladdin review, I think, Matthew, Tim Burton being corseted into the Disney brand and all of that. But I think actually in Dumbo, you can tell that he had a little bit more free range. I just got sucked in by the music, especially. I got a little teary-eyed whenever Dumbo flew. I get why people wouldn't like it, but I actually think they expanded on the story in a way that made sense. Because the original is barely an hour long. Yeah. It's just so weird that they have this capitalist criticism in it. In a movie made by Disney, that's something you pointed out on Twitter, I think. It's like, it's so weird to see a Disney movie portraying this kind of theme park and all of that in a negative way, where I'm like, are they aware that they are basically criticizing themselves, or is this also something that slipped their minds? Are Disney executives genuinely actually stupid? Yeah, it's such a weird movie when you 
look at it on that level, I mean, this is kind of the exception to the remakes that have come out this year in that it is obviously largely rewritten from the original. It's one of those ones where they have actually completely gone back to it. And obviously that's understandable. I mean, you're not going to have those crows in it, are you? (laughs) (laughs) No, let's not go there. But it's just sort of a weirdly sad kind of movie. And I get that, you know, it's meant to be like this uplifting tale, but I never got that kind of uplift from it at the end of it. And it starts out in this really grim place. It starts out post-World War One. They have the flu epidemic. Their mother has died from that. Their father comes back and he's lost an arm. The circus is struggling. It starts out in this really bleak, desolate place. Something like a Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> and then Dumbo appears and he gets mocked for his appearance. The original is, is dark and grim as well in that way. They just, you know, they, they took what was there and exaggerated in a way that actually kind of made sense in my opinion. I thought those kid actors were wooden as all hell. They were just <laughs> unreal in the way they... I, I actually forgot that the boy was even a character in this because he barely talks and they give all the action to the girl. Uh, Tandy Newsom's daughter. Oh, really? I thought she looked familiar. Yeah, she looks exactly like her mother. <laughs> That's so weird. But I thought she didn't do a really good job in this. And now Eva Green is Tim Burton's new... Uh, Muse. Muse, yeah. She's the new Helena Bonham Carter. But uh, I actually thought they, they did a good job with, with the casting, everything, even though I thought Michael Keaton was a little bit too over the top. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, he was really hammy. It's a satire of Disney and their practices. You've got Michael Keaton's villain who runs a Disney-like theme park called <laughs> Dream World that is eventually burned down to the ground in the climax. I don't think they quite realize how weird a movie like that comes across <laughs> at the time that it's being released when they're doing the Fox merger and everything when they're literally enacting <laughs> what's going on in the movie. I don't think they quite realized how profoundly tone deaf it feels. Yeah. Big studios do this kind of movie all the time where it's like the big fight against the establishment, the big system, as if the studios don't realize that they are actually the big establishment, the big system. And so they're basically doing a movie. They portray themselves, themselves as yeah. the villains. Yeah. And they, studios do that all the time. I mean, Johnny, you said you, you really hated this remake. <laughs> I don't really have much to say about it besides what you guys already just said. I think that, like, there are a couple interesting audio and visual things that I liked. I liked some of the framing of things, but I just thought it was completely morose to the point where it was kind of silly. It felt like Zack Snyder directed it at a certain point. Oh. Like, completely just, like, the most morose, dark shit. And I get it. Dumbo, with the exception of the flying and the more meme kind of parts of it, the original story is not like that. But I really just didn't care for this movie at all. <laughs> I, I think it was probably one of my least favorite of the year and it was disappointing because I actually I, I do like the original Dumbo I'm not like a huge fan of it but I do like it so hmm. yeah. I just uh, was disappointed by it but yeah all right. And of course, that brings us to Guy Ritchie's Aladdin. Oh, God. Here we go. <sighs> yeah, so uh, another remake that is virtually scene for scene, not entirely line for line. There are more substantial differences than there are in The Lion King, but there's also the fact that, obviously, you have to replace Robin Williams with Will Smith, because Robin Williams, when he died, in his will, he said that Disney couldn't release any new outtakes of him for 25 years after his death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get the impression 
is they didn't have that blocking them. Because he recorded so much for the original film, there was already talk that they were going to make something called Genies, like this sequel made entirely out of outtakes that were never used for the original. <laughs> I get the impression if they didn't have that stipulation, they would have used those as the basis for an entirely new performance and it would have got into this whole other level of resurrecting a performer from the dead that you've already got kind of creepily in like Peter Cushing's Rogue One performance there. And it, right now I actually think after they, they did that stuff with Peter Cushing, I think all of the Hollywood actors actually put that into their contracts, their stipulations that actually studios couldn't do that anymore with them. Yeah, it's creepy and invasive. But anyway, on Aladdin the movie itself, I went in fully expecting to hate it. It's not like I wanted to like be upset. I went in looking like I was going to despise it. And I actually didn't really despise it to the point where I, like, I thought it shouldn't be made. I thought there were a couple of good things they did with it. A couple things that I really hated. I hated the main actor. <laughs> uh, Mena Masood. Yeah, w- whatever his name is. I, I forget. But uh, I hated, hated Jafar. Oh, boy. Oh, he's majorly miscast. Yes. I was thinking the entire time, why the hell isn't Jeremy Irons Jafar in this movie? <laughs> It would legitimately fix probably half the things I really hate about the movie. He just has no presence to him. No. Bring me the lamp. (laughs) And I'm like, dude, you're supposed to be the most sycophantic and weird and creepy villain. And I do not think of anything like that when I look at you. It upset me. It's like they they also try to make up for that fact that he's not intimidating at all. Because like in his first big scene, he kills one of his henchmen for no reason. To see like, see, he's the bad guy because he killed a person. (laughs) I had the same experience that you did, Johnny, in that I didn't hate it. Mm. I had sort of an expectation that I was probably going to hate it, but I didn't. I didn't dislike it heavily enough. I just thought it was really boring. Yeah. (laughs) You know, Aladdin and Lion King, they don't have that much in the way of story to them, and yet they feel the need to pad them out to almost two hours in length, and that's the point where you start going, okay, I'm losing attention here. The story is very straightforward. You're not adding any new dimensions here. You're just simply expanding what you already had. Yeah, but there's a reason why those movies are so short, because of course those scripts were longer, of course they cut some stuff, because they realized, hey, this is not important to the actual story. I also didn't hate the remake, went to it with low expectations. That was one I didn't see in the press screen. I actually paid money to see that one, but I actually thought, you know, the the, the whole thing, there were some interesting things I liked, but whenever Will Smith was on screen, I was like, this is where the movie actually came to life, where the different spin and his take on the role really worked. There was one moment that made me laugh out loud when they did the fourth role break with the cinema screen mm, yeah. when he, he reveals the lamp behind the back trick. That made me laugh out loud. That was really good. Yeah, yeah, that was a high point actually for me. <laughs> and I like, legitimately went in fully expecting to think that Will Smith was a bastardization of the character and I was like, this guy sucks. And actually, he did a really interesting thing with the genie where like I actually liked his performance on screen and it wasn't like a disrespectful Robin Williams impression mm. he invoked the kind of boisterous parts of the character but he added his own personality and take to it which I thought was actually really really effective it was a respectful performance I think I think that's the thing is that we say that oh we, I can't see anyone else in the role but technically that's not really true I think if you cast the right performer a part is replaceable yeah I don't think you can entirely erase someone's performance yeah but I still think that there is room for another performer to do their own spin on it exactly in a way that is simultaneously respectful and 
doing something different. The same principle applies to Mufasa in that they could have done that there in the remake and they didn't. It shows the problems when you don't make those decisions. Yeah, I think that was probably one of those instances where we said, hey, he's still alive and if it ain't broken, why fix it? Yeah. But it still comes across uninspired and lazy in a way. Yeah, for sure. My big problem with the Guy Ritchie Aladdin is that it didn't feel like a Guy Ritchie movie. Yeah. I mean, I hated King Arthur Legend of the Sword, but at least it was a Guy Ritchie movie <laughs> through and through. Oh, it was. It was. Aside from a couple of bits of speed ramping, you'd never know he touched it whatsoever. Yeah. No, no. There's such weird parts in the remake. He doesn't show any flair in the way he directs the musical numbers. It doesn't really seem like he has any passion for it. This is like a paycheck drop, even though he has a, a screenwriting credit on this as well. Yeah. It's just so, so weird. And it's also like, this is one of those instances, can you please just stop putting, you know, the, the songwriters Benjik and Paul on every single movie musical nowadays? Like, are there no other songwriters out there? It gets to a point where it just really annoys me. I do think that the songs in Aladdin and the remake of The Lion King, they don't match the production on the original. I think they try very hard to try and amp them up. It feels too overproduced. I mean, I have that problem with a lot of modern music. I think it's overdone to the point where it takes any kind of nuance or flavour out of it because you can tell that every beat, every rhythm has been thought about and over-considered. <laughs> yeah, and then you have something like Les Miserables, which feels underproduced in a way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not done with the remakes yet. There's still one more to go this year. Really? And that is Lady and the Tramp, which is not being released theatrically. It's on Disney+. Plus. Oh, that's right! Yes, it's the one that everyone forgets about. <laughs> that's why I didn't have it on my mind. It's because it's not theatrical. I had zero idea that was even being made until you just said that. <laughs> Like, not a clue. What the hell? Yeah, so there is a live-action version of Lady and the Tramp. Come on, leave the dogs alone. With the voices of Tessa Thompson and Justin Theroux. What? Freaking what? Why Justin? That's the weirdest casting I've ever heard. <laughs> Apparently this is like their big Disney Plus premiere movie, and I have a hypothesis here, is that they shot this movie, and then they suddenly realized... It's shit. Oh, it's Marmaduke. <laughs> I'm looking at the screenshots right now. This is Homeward Bound. Like this is yeah. Like Exactly. Isn't it also a Disney production, Homeward Bound? Yeah. I think it is, yeah. No, I, I just saw that one screenshot a couple of months ago, and I was like, what kind of new spin can you even bring to it? It seems like it takes place in the same time period again. Are they doing the, oh, we don't see any human faces in oh, this? Oh, no, no, they're not. They're not, because uh, Kirstie Clemens and Thomas Mann are in the cast, so uh, they've got names. Uh, why? Uh, and, and still, if, if they actually still keep those names, but they, they shoot them just from the hip down, that would be actually really funny. <laughs> it would be funny, but it's so weird. Like, no one stops to consider, oh, well, if you take Lane the Tramp and you do it as live action, that just makes it another talking dog movie. Yes, exactly. That's the reason why it's not being released theatrically. I think they realized, oh, this was a mistake. <laughs> That's also something I said on my podcast. When you want to see a live action remake of Lady in the Tramp, just go and watch Hot Shots Part 2, where they do the whole uh, Italian restaurant scene while that he's seen from The Godfather place in the background. Apparently, they are going to do the spaghetti scene in live action. Can you imagine how hard that would have been to do with real dogs? Yeah, of, co of course they're doing that. It's one of the most parodied things in cinema history. Uh, it's probably going to be bad. I know I'm prejudging, 
but my senses are not good. Do you know anything like who's directing that one, or is it just name withheld upon request? Charlie Bean, who is known for his work on Tron Uprising, but mostly has worked in animation. Tron Uprising, I've heard of that one. It's one of those, okay, I see. <laughs> he was the director of the Lego Ninjago movie. Oh, wow. yeah, that's why. One of the three directors, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Boy, um, I probably won't go see it, because <laughs> I, I, I won't be able to see anything on Disney+, Plus. so that's something I don't need to discuss on a podcast, I guess. <laughs> yeah. There is more remakes coming, but I actually have more interest in these remakes. I think that they do show a lot of promise. We've obviously got the trailer for Mulan coming up. Yeah, yeah. No, they didn't show that trailer in front of Lion King in my screening. Why would you erase Mushu from the story? I get it. Doing something original and having it be realistic, but Mushu is one of the linchpins of the actual story progressing forward. I don't know why you would erase a mage character from the story. That just feels kind of wrong to me. I don't know if you guys agree, but I just think <laughs> that's the real bastardization of the story. I don't know. You see, because Mulan is based on a real Chinese folk legend, and I think Mushu is kind of symptomatic of a problem that I felt when I rewatched it, maybe like a year or two ago, in that Eddie Murphy's performance is definitely inspired by Robin Williams' work as the genie. He's obviously this audience surrogate character breaking the fourth wall in sort of the same way, and he's kind of there to make it accessible. He is the sort of archetypal example of this kind of Western introduced element into the story. He's definitely, I think, a character where they kind of, oh, he's comic and accessible <laughs> in that way. And so I can very easily see why they got rid of him. I, I don't think Mulan's going to be a lot like the animated film at all, in, except for the fact that it's based on the same story. I think it's one of those where they're literally going to go back right from scratch. And yeah. we obviously mentioned the, the whole money thing about these Disney remakes, but we haven't mentioned the C word, namely China. <sighs> Disney is clearly making these movies for that audience because a lot of these movies, they weren't released to the Chinese audience or they didn't really perform very well back then. I mean, Lion King was actually re-released a few years ago in a 3D conversion, but that didn't really make a lot of money in the same way that its initial run did. Hmm. That was primarily for the Chinese market because they were very big into 3D and still are to this day. Mulan is definitely their most concentrated Chinese play. I think the Lion King remake was actually opened in China a week before it opened in any other territory. Oh, oh yeah. That makes it very clear who this was specifically aimed at. You realise, oh, it's not made for us. It's made for what is currently the second biggest movie-going territory in the world. At Disney realised they don't make any money with Star Wars over there in China. Star Wars doesn't work in China, no. It's so weird. It's Why doesn't Star Wars work there? Maybe because of a magic angle or something? Like, I don't know. Because they tried to pander to the audience by casting certain actors in Rogue One, and it didn't work at all. And then immediately Disney realised, okay, we've lost them with this kind of movie. Let's try something else, I guess. Yeah. So Milan is definitely made for a Chinese audience, yeah. and it's made specifically for them, and they're trying to integrate it more into the culture. And as I understand it, early word on Mulan has been very positively received by Chinese audiences. Mm. They really appreciate that they're getting a Disney movie that is their own. Mm. The original Mulan didn't do very well back in the day, and they didn't like it. They felt it was a very kind of Americanized version of their culture, and you know they were right on that opinion in, in my thought. Sure, sure. I see your point for sure, but to disagree a little bit on the sentiment of Mushu, I think Mushu's probably my favorite like animal-esque character in all these Disney movies. I mean, like taking out the whole cultural thing where like, I mean, it's obviously the Chinese dragon, there's no wings to it, and that's kind of like uh, par for the course for depicting that kind of mythical beast, but the problem that I have with eliminating Mushu from the story is Mushu was not only meant to be comedic relief, but it's kind of meant 
to have a mirror to Mulan's personality and have it be kind of the dark reflection of that because in contrast to Mulan, Mushu is more comical, but he's also more overconfident and impulsive and kind of convinces Mulan to join the army against her own conscience and her parents' best wishes and stuff. <laughs> and obviously, like Mulan has that kind of sentiment inside her to like, you know, be a war hero. But I just feel like having Mushu kind of subtly almost be a critique of that kind of ambition was really impactful for me. I totally get what you're saying, though, with mm. the whole cultural aspect of it. But I just think that eliminating that kind of character from that story kind of misses a fatal point the movie's trying to actually make. But I see your perspective, too. It could go either way. As a fan of the actual character, I was kind of disappointed that they chose to excise from the movie. Yeah, sure. I think it's, again, because it's trying to take a more serious take on it, I think that that character would be misplaced because he is overtly comic relief. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I just don't think the character would fit in this incarnation, especially considering the trailer looks like Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mushu was a predecessor to what Eddie Murphy later was doing in Shrek. Yeah. My thing with Mulan is that might be the first theatrical experience I actually can remember. Mm. I watched that in the theater with one of my aunts and maybe like also one of my brothers. It was really impactful to me. It's still one of my favorites in a way, how they write the characters, the songs, the, the visuals and that. And also like, yeah, the comic relief and that is really funny, but it's still, it's amping off the success of what Robin Williams was doing. And this actually proves my point of remakes, which is like, people are already mad. Like, oh, they cut Mushu out. They cut the songs out. Ah, oh, it's not the Mulan of my childhood. I'm like, I hate that logic because I was like, people, you can just go and watch the original, right? Yeah. You realize that those movies aren't automatically erased. Your DVDs aren't suddenly blank. When you want to watch the original, go watch the original. Yeah. Why would you want to see just a weirdly different take on the original again if you can just watch the original again? <laughs> That's the problem with the Lion King remake. Why would you pick this version yeah. over one that is exactly the same but is inferior? It feels like a like a hollow carbon copy. In a remake, I want something different. I want something new. And uh, this one looks like it's doing something new. I mean, it's kind of weird that a film with uh, Chinese cars and it's taking place in China and they all speak English. This is kind of like the, the 47 Ronin situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At least there's no Keanu Reeves in here. Like, oh, conspicuous Western star. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What, who they blatantly edited in later, as you can clearly tell. Yeah. In this case, the trailer, I was like, okay, no, no, they're going back to the original story. They're playing it straight and I don't know what they will do in the details, but it looks really nice. It looks like a remake that actually has a purpose. Yes, and that's exactly what you want. Of course, we've also got The Little Mermaid coming up. I don't think cameras have actually started rolling on that. Oh, uh, no. We won't be seeing that for a long while anyway. We know very little about that this time because obviously this is years ahead of when it comes out. I already have like a good feeling about it just from the casting of Halle Bailey in the title role immediately by casting someone black in the role of The Little Mermaid. That makes it a huge difference there. Maybe the rest of the movie will be very faithful yes. to the rest of the script. But even that alone, you know, it has various different effects across the story and it has so much that it could add to it. I'd have to see how things progress from here, but that by itself initially gives me some confidence about it. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's true. I'm, all, I'm thinking about because it's Rob Marshall directing that one as well. It, it's really weird that they get the director who depicted mermaids a couple of years earlier <laughs> in a very vicious and creepy way in, in Pirates 4. <laughs> oh yeah, in Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, well, That's true, yeah. Did they look at that footage of like, you know, this is the right guy to direct our Little Mermaid movie. <laughs> it's like they saw Pirates 4 and like, you know what really improved this uh, mermaid scene? A musical number. And then... <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a musical number. They sing a song before they 
I start eating the pirates? I mean, Martin's got a lot of experience with directing musicals. He did Chicago and he did Nine. Which I actually like that movie a lot, yeah. At his worst, he can unfortunately fall into that journeyman category. His work on Pirates of the Caribbean 4, definitely that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, he did Mary Poppins Returns, didn't he? Oh, wow. I, I forgot about that. Yes, he did. Yeah, he, he did. did that. I didn't see that one, actually. That was one where I was like, I, I really don't have to see that. I like the original just so much. And this looks like it won't give me anything new, even though it's kind of a sequel, but I think it's also a remake at the same time. It's just, I didn't want to see that. It is a sequel that is technically a remake. You know, it's one of those. Yeah. And I can sort of understand that. I mean, a long time has passed between the two movies. You know, you've got 60 years of development, but it is faithfully recreating all the beats of that story. And it is basically another Disney remake by another name. But I liked certain aspects. Of it. I liked Emily Blunt's performance as Mary yeah. Poppins because you can clearly tell that she wasn't doing Julie Andrews. She was trying to do something a little bit closer to what P.L. Travers wrote about Mary Poppins. Oh, oh, I see. Okay. So she's kind of a bit more of a brittle version of that character. So she's not really kind of as a sunshine and roses and all the over all that. <laughs> she's not as chirpy as the Andrews version. Sure, sure. Which again is a positive quirk of it. But again, I, I didn't really gravitate towards uh, Mary Poppins Returns. But again, that's probably because I didn't really see Mary Poppins until directly beforehand and it didn't really leave as much of an impression on me. I can understand it having nostalgia for certain audiences. Yeah, yeah. sure. I was going to say uh, the next one would be Cruella, I guess. Yeah, there's also Cruella coming up with uh, Emma Stone. I think she's good casting for that. She could be fine. So what we're getting now is this kind of spin-off of a Disney remake that had a sequel. <laughs> That's yeah. true. They're going to go like the, the Maleficent approach with that, yeah. I'm pretty sure. Could be interesting, but it's like, do you really want to see a character who wants to kill puppies to make clothes out of them in a sympathetic way? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like Maleficent with dogs, and I don't know. They're going to fall in this trap now where like they're going to have the kind of the wicked syndrome where like every evil character, they feel like they're going to have to justify what they're doing. Where like, I think just having a dirty capitalist dog killing idiot is probably enough, but I mean, I, I don't know. The, mo the movie is probably going to be pretty decent, I guess. I don't know. Mm -hmm. And of course, the last upcoming one that is at least in production is Sword in the Stone. I didn't even know this was being made until I looked at the Wikipedia page. I'm like, oh! I didn't either. I was thinking after a King Arthur Legend of the Sword flopped so horribly, I was like, they should stay the hell away from King Arthur stuff. <laughs> is there any information? Like, who's directing this? Who's in this? Uh, one car's Fraz Nidalillo, who did 28 weeks later. Oh, yeah. So, uh, good director, but we literally have not heard a single thing. No. Apparently it's going to be on Disney Plus as well, so um, oh, okay. I guess technically you consider this a TV movie. Okay, that, that might explain it, because I was like, did J.J. Abrams produce this? <laughs> because we don't know anything about it yet. Lately you have seen that certain IPs, like those public domain things, don't make money anymore. You can see that in the flops of the most recent Robin Hood, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword, Legend of Tarzan, and also now um, The Kid Who Would Be King, which I actually really, really liked. But you can see that people are no longer interested in these kind of materials anymore. When you are not a comic book movie or a Disney movie, and mostly those comic book movies are coming from Disney, you are going to bomb. Yeah. This brings up an interesting point, I think, in that what is your opinion of Disney now? Has it changed? And do you think audiences' opinions of Disney are changing because of these remakes? I mean, obviously the audiences are still going to see them, but at some point they're going to 
going to realise, I have seen this movie before, why am I paying 10, 15 bucks to see this at the cinema when I could just watch the DVD that I bought? Yeah. I do think that there is a certain section of audience that is becoming increasingly jaded towards Disney, and I, I feel that in the same way. I think that my opinion of Disney has sort of lowered in estimation because of all these remakes. I know that it's a corporate decision. I know that some smart ass is going to go, oh, well, every movie is made to make money. Well, yeah, <laughs> duh, obviously. I'm not yeah. an idiot. But yeah, even yeah. so, you know, every film is attempting to try and do something between arts and commerce. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it is. Except for these Disney remakes, which for the most part just feel like commerce. Here's my opinion. Like, I just think that Disney gave off a more emotionally satisfying sentiment with their movies back in the past, but now that they've become legitimately a conglomerate, yeah. it's just more in your face that they're just more cynical, exploiting certain things for the sole purpose of making money. Obviously, like you said, every movie does that, but it's never been as blatant as it is now. And I'm not saying that like you you shouldn't make money from movies and you shouldn't like capitalize on certain things for audiences, but I just think that it's kind of too blatant and kind of too close for comfort in these times, but there's not really much you can change about that that's kind of the way movies are but disney kind of puts it in the forefront that makes any sense yeah i kind of agree with that it's like nostalgia has become so incredibly dangerous it's weaponized <laughs> i talked with some critics after the lion king screening and they were kind of coming up with excuses to justify this remake you know it's it's obvious that they like it because they remember liking the original and all of that and it's just like nostalgia blinds so many people and and nowadays, they just make most of these movies because of IPs or star recognition, not because a small idea is actually the selling point. Stuff like Jaws, Predator, Alien, or Die Hard was really simple ideas. They don't seem to do these anymore. These Disney remakes are a perfect encapsulation of this kind of approach. You know, I could talk hours and hours about this, but that's basically the point. I think what it comes down to is that the fact that Disney is so dominant in mainstream cinema at the minute because obviously they own Marvel they now own Fox they have the movies that they're producing through their animations you got Pixar it feels like especially this year they have dominated over the discussion you've had Avengers Endgame which is now the highest grossing movie of all time you've got Toy Story 4 like one in four tickets is for a Disney movie you've got an article recently in the Hollywood Reporter complaining from other studios that Disney has bought up all the big play dates you are competing against this increasing monolith and yet what they're releasing is I think some of their most creatively stagnant outputs they've ever had. Yeah, yeah. They are coasting along on their prior success because they know that they are too big to fail. (laughs) That's not to say they haven't had misfires like A Wrinkle in Time or what clearly is going on with Artemis Fowl right now. Hmm. But even so, those are like minor blips in comparison to the ongoing successes they've had and if you keep paying to see these movies they're gonna keep making them if you don't like these movies seek out the independent cinema I mean it's a really hard time for the smaller movies to try and get their voices heard against the huge marketing campaigns that Disney have especially considering that you know in America they obviously own ABC so they got cross promotion through them it's saturation blanket point coverage and it's a little bit depressing when you think about it yeah this company will own the world at a certain point. I actually have a theory that in about maybe 20 years, all 
cinemas and all over the world. They will be owned by Disney and they will only play the newest Disney movies and the newest comic book Marvel stuff and the whole rest of other films, those will get directly to streaming. That will be our future. I really hope not. <laughs> but I don't think that Disney's prominence right now, especially with the fact they're not trying, really helps very much in terms of the creative output because all the studios are trying to replicate what Disney's doing in that they're basically trying to copy the success of the MCU and shared universes and big franchises. Yeah, but it's also... And I don't want to put down Disney because they, aside from these remakes, they still do a lot of good stuff, in my opinion. You know, yeah. the stuff they let Pixar make. I mean, the after Toy Story 4, the next four Pixar movies they announced, that's all original stuff. I'm mm. really looking forward to Onward. That looks like a really fun idea. The stuff they do with the MCU, I really enjoy. You know, Frozen 2 actually looks really good. That doesn't look like a retread of the first movie. That looks like it's going into a totally different direction in terms of tone, in terms of story. And I'm really looking forward to that and I still admire a lot of what Disney does. I like most of the other animated movies they did. Stuff like Wrecked Ralph and Tangled, all of that. But it's like those remakes. I mean, they know that in order to keep making money and fund maybe some of the more better stuff, they know that they have to do these safe movies. Kind of like how probably Pixar did Toy Story 4 to fund all of those original movies they planned. Yeah. I, I'm not trying to put down the quality of what Disney does for release. It's actually quite high when you think about it. There is a lot of really good quality products there. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, there is a certain point where you go, having a 40% market share isn't really good for anyone, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. We keep bringing back up the, the term laziness. It's not laziness in terms of the people who are actually making these movies. As a guy who actually works in filmmaking and all of that, you know, a lot of time and effort goes into every bit of production. It's laziness in terms of the executive who actually greenlight these projects. It's a very corporate level problem, I think, a lot of these, of which the remakes in general, I think, are largely emblematic of. Yeah. Yeah. I think we have discussed this very authoritatively over the last two hours. <laughs> I know, man. <laughs> Covered a lot of ground. It is probably time to uh, sign off. So, Johnny, where can people find you? All right. So you can find me at youtube.com slash the lone chemist. You can find me on Instagram at the lone chemist. And you can find me on Twitter at the lone chemist one. Uh, some guy took my name a couple years ago. Very sad. Oh. Yeah. Check me out. I got a new video on the spectacular now coming out in like a couple weeks or so. So please check that out. And uh, thanks for having me on man no problem Lasso where can people find you you can find me on Facebook and Twitter at Lasse Vogt my own podcast is called Fans About Films you can find it on SoundCloud and iTunes together with Laya Perez I host It's 90s Christmas podcast on Podomatic and iTunes a little bit of a break going on right now but uh, we will come back it's about actually 90s nostalgia and uh, Christmas media I have a YouTube channel The Depp and I write uh, soundtrack reviews for scorgi.wordpress.com if you are out there and speak German by any chance I am part of the podcast network Telestammtisch, where we talk about all the new movies that are coming out big shout out to those guys like you see i do everything online please check my stuff out and thanks for having me here i had a blast excellent you can find me on twitter fb underscore bmb you can find me on facebook at film brain reviews uh, on tumblr at film brain bmb and also of course my youtube channel look me up at film brain but until next time i'm matthew buck fading out thank you for listening to the film brain podcast hope you enjoyed it just a reminder that if you want to support my work be it podcasts or youtube videos please go to my patreon at patreon.com slash film where you can experience those episodes early among other perks and just a quick shout out to my patrons tim poppleton so fox inigo almandos tim tark g 
Antiviral, Robert Murray, Henry Jacob, Manuel Jonan, Marley Berrickmans, Joshua Bowden, Anoy Hayek, Jonah Gustafson, Tom Oliver Maddox. And remember, if you have any feedback about the show over social media, please use the hashtag FilmBrainPodcast. Oh, and I may have had a little bit of trouble saying the word Mufasa. Oops. I mean, admittedly, it's not helped by the fact that Mustafa falling, kind of ragdolling, looked really goofy. Is there a reason you're calling him Mustafa? <laughs> Mustafa. That's the uh, that's the guy from uh, Austin Powers. Right? Oh yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> okay, sorry. I will re I will re I will go back and redo that a second. It's because my I'm having a brain fart. So I'm having to. <laughs> I, I was just I was just thinking like, should I correct him? Should I? And then it's uh... probably good that you did. <laughs> okay. <laughs>